today out of Ephesians chapter 1, verses 1 to 6. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace, and, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundations of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved." Now, altogether, the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. You may be seated. All right. Um, would you allow me just to commend this time to the Lord, and then we'll begin. Father, these um, are big, big words, and these are... Um, tectonic ideas and doctrines, and um, we just pray that your spirit, Lord, uh, would be here in a special way, opening up the eyes of our hearts, making us soft and tender to your word, um, that we would have a really big vision of you. Expand our hearts, expand our imaginations, for we pray in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. Well, good morning. I, I'm Ronnie, and uh, it's really good to be with you. Um, so this morning, we are actually starting a new sermon series on the book of Ephesians. And I'm really excited about this because Ephesians is like one of the most masterful and beautiful letters in the New Testament. Um, on one hand, it's going to introduce to us some of the most profound theology that can be found anywhere in the Bible— and on the other hand, it's going to get extremely practical. So it's going to address really important topics like marriage and raising children and our work and how to solve differences. Um, we actually believe that this ancient letter that Paul wrote to these churches in Ephesus are what modern people in Denver need to hear today. And let me just give you a little bit of historical uh, background as we, as we take the on-ramp into this letter. So after the Apostle Paul had an encounter with the resurrected Jesus Christ, like his life was changed forever. And he was commissioned to take the news of Jesus Christ deep into the Roman Empire and especially among the Gentiles. And so he would have several missionary journeys, actually three, and there, that's what's actually documented in the book of Acts. On his third missionary journey, he stops in the city of Ephesus. Uh, that's like modern-day Turkey, just as a frame of reference. And he stayed there for about two or three years. Uh, you can actually read about this, and you should, in Acts chapter 19. Uh, Ephesus was one of the most successful, prosperous cities in the Roman Empire. To this day, you can still see sections where the streets are made of marble. They're still, they still exist to this day. 
So Ephesus is a port city, uh, which actually marked the beginning of the famous Silk Road, if you've studied about that in history, that leads all the way into China. Uh, And because Ephesus was so uh, wealthy and large, it attracted all kinds of religions. In fact, one of the seven wonders of the world, uh, the Temple of Artemis, resides in Ephesus. You can still see its ruins to this day. It's amazing. Um, And Paul, there's there's two or three years that he he was there, was incredibly successful. I mean, all kinds of people uh, came to Christ. Several churches were born. The Spirit was doing amazing things. Um, But even though Paul would leave, the Christians, they had to stay in that really seductive city. And they were asking themselves, okay, I'm a Christian, but how do, I, how do I live out my faith in this really difficult context? See, they were Christians, but they were inundated with all of these really confusing ideas about God. And to be sure, the doctrines that they learned and the doctrines that they believed about God shaped their decisions. So a few years after Paul leaves, he's put in jail, all right? But he never forgot about his friends in Ephesus. And so he writes a letter to the Ephesians from jail to help them. And he writes about doctrine. And then he connects that doctrine to daily living. Because Paul thinks that doctrine is one of the most practical things for Christians. And so that's where he starts. So if you were to look at like an outline of the book of Ephesians, you would see that there are six chapters. The first three chapters are filled with doctrine. And then the first word in chapter 4 says, therefore, and chapters 4 through 6 connects this really exalted vision that you get in chapters 1 through 3 to how we should live in chapters 4, 5, and 6. And because Paul is writing from jail and he thinks he's going to die, he writes about life with extreme sobriety and clarity, right? He thinks he's going to die at the hands of the Romans. And so when he talks about God, like he's not trying to be politically correct. Like his days are limited, right? And he promotes this this vision of God that's absolutely sovereign and supreme over everything. And I mean everything. Paul pulls no punches. And, And if what Paul writes does not make you a little bit uncomfortable, you're not reading carefully. Paul says in no uncertain terms that God predestined you before the foundation of the world to be his own. You know what that word predestination means? And this isn't a translation thing. The word predestined is in every translation, Catholic translations, NIV, ESV, whatever. It's the same word. Examine the precise meaning of the Greek. I did all the research, and here's what it means. It means that God appointed you to be his people, to be saved, even before there were stars in the sky. Now, for modern listeners, uh, that's often kind of a jagged pill for us to swallow. It's a little bit uncomfortable. For ancient people, it was not as difficult. I mean, most people believed that if God exists, then of course he's in control of all things. By nature, that's what God is like. Because humans could never be equal to God and subject God to their will. 
Uh, things have changed, of course. We, are, uh, we have more confidence in our power to reason. We, we think of free will as being the most important human virtue. And we see ourselves now, our sense of ourselves as being fully autonomous. We're, we see ourselves as being fully unhinged from outside forces, completely free to chart our own identity and destiny. So any vision or, or doctrine of God that makes us dependent on him makes us a little bit uncomfortable, if not a lot. Perhaps it for some of you, depending on your background, maybe it, it provokes these images of like John Calvin looking grumpy, telling the world about this uh, diabolical deity who plays games with the destiny of man or something like that. You know? I don't know, I don't know what, what pictures come to mind. Um, for the record, John Calvin did not inv- invent predestination, right? He's just saying what the Bible says just like Martin Luther did before him, just like Thomas Aquinas did before him, just like St. Augustine did before him, and even the Apostle Paul. Now, if you've ever met a person um, who used this doctrine to hurt people, uh, I'm really sorry. I want you to hear that from me. I'm really sorry. Clearly, that person has no idea the sheer humility that this doctrine demands of us. I think what happens is that young people have their eyes opened to the Reformed faith. It's so profound and beautiful and thoughtful. Uh, It lets the Bible just say whatever it wants to say. And then these young guys, armed with this theology and a few uh, grumpy blogs, they have no wisdom, and sometimes they act like jerks. And I'm sorry. No one here is going to defend any of that. No one's going to defend that. But listen closely. Today, I want us to let Paul just say what he says. We don't have to explain it away. We're just going to let God's word take us out of the center of our reality, right? Because this life is not about us. It's about God. And God's word wants to knock us off the sort of self-centered vision of the world. And, And this comes, it doesn't come without resistance, right? I mean, some people will offer a rebuttal saying, you reformed guys, you're, you always want to put God in a box, right? Have you ever heard that? Uh, I have actually found the exact opposite to be true. The exact opposite. One theologian says the reason why uh, in evangelicalism we have various kinds of theologies is because there are various capacities for mystery, If you have a high capacity for mystery, you'll allow the Bible to say what it says. If you don't, you'll feel uncomfortable when the Bible says things that seem to you to be irrational from your vantage point, right? See, listen, a box is when we accept or reject a biblical passage based on whether it fits our preconceived ideas about the world, you see. But when your capacity for mystery is high— You'll let the Bible just say what it says. You won't, you won't have to explain it away when it gets hard. And in fact, it's in those moments that are so mysterious that you'll say to yourself, my goodness, like this has to be true. I mean, this cannot be a man-made religion. I mean, we never would have written the script like this, right? We just wouldn't have, we wouldn't have invented it like this. And let me tell you how this ends. This belief of God's absolute supremacy 
is this incredibly hopeful, that's the word I want you to hear, hopeful way to live. And if you're here and you're exploring Christianity, you know, my prayer is that you can kind of listen in and kind of be filled with a kind of hope that you have never experienced before in your life. Because Paul didn't write this to be confusing. He did mean for it to take your breath away, but he wrote it to give you peace and joy and comfort. And that's what I hope happens today. So this has been a long introduction. In these opening verses, uh, Paul's going to begin with this greeting, uh, and he is going to wish them grace and peace, all right? And those are the two words that are going to direct our study today, grace and then peace. So let's begin with grace. So as you can see there in verse 1, the letter begins with a customary greeting. Paul says that he is an apostle, right? And this means that Paul has been appointed by Jesus himself to speak on God's behalf with authority. Now listen, when Paul speaks as an apostle, it means that it should be received as scripture, right? So Paul's not just giving us his opinions. If a person in our culture uses the title apostle, like the apostle Ronnie or something like that, then just politely leave and run as fast as you can, right? There are no more apostles. Uh, When the Bible uses that, uh, it means something very specific. So no one can speak with the same authority as the New Testament authors, right? And it says there, if you continue, Paul is writing to the saints in Ephesus. You see that? Now, I don't know what you think of when you hear the word saint, uh, but it does not mean that they are morally perfect, all right? Paul is talking here about Christians, people who have been set apart, people who have been set apart to live lives that are different than their culture. And to these saints, he greets them and says what? Grace, peace. And Paul longs for these Christians to experience a profound grace and peace. Now, we only went to verse 6, but what follows is verses 3 through 14. And in the Greek, 3 through 14 is just one long run-on sentence. It's not even good grammar. (laughs) So why does Paul do it? It looks like Paul's getting caught up. And these beautiful thoughts about God. And he just keeps going. Because he wants them to, to experience it. Experience grace and peace. And he explodes like there's these exalted thoughts about God. Now, in the following weeks, right, we're going we're gonna to do a more intense, like, traditional exposition of those verses. Today, I want to limit our focus to the core idea of predestination. Today might even feel a little bit topical uh, it's a, you know, an introductory sermon, so thank you for your patience. Some of you guys love this, and some of you guys would prefer just to do traditional exposition. But I do want to think about this today with us. So let's consider grace. So verse 3, Paul says, Blessed be God, who has, what, blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing. Great. Well, how did that happen? And he explains by telling the believers at Ephesus that, what, that God chose us, in him before the foundation of the world. And then he continues in verse 5, in love, in love he predestined us. Now what you'll notice is that Paul locates God's love and salvation for us prior to the creation itself. Before we ever breathed our first breath, God's favor was upon us. See that? 
Now, why is this so significant? It's because God's love is first. We can't point to anything that we have done to earn or merit or negotiate God's love. Grace, you guys, grace by definition is something that cannot be earned, right? He chooses us. That's what the text says. Now, if you will allow it, this doctor and this text can be one of the most comforting doctrines possible, but you have to experience it, right? But instead of experiencing it, well, let me tell you what we do, is we go right to, um, uh, we go right to the problems, like, right, the, the logical, the, we, these sort of uh, syllogisms, the problems that we think it creates. Uh, you, you, you'd say, for instance, no, I chose God. And now listen, we can all understand that from our limited vantage point, right, we understand, that, like, we must repent, we must believe, like, this is true, 100%. But from God's vantage point, which is expressed in Ephesians, you chose God because God chose you first, right? Before the foundations of the world, even. Now, some will insist, well, I don't like it that way. I chose Christ freely. But when you do that, there's, there's something happening deep in your spirit in ways that you might not even be able to detect. See, in that moment, you are insisting that there is something in you that makes you better than people who don't believe. Now listen, we wouldn't say it like that. No one would say it like that. But that's the bottom line. R.C. Sproul, the late theologian, he illustrates this point through this conversation he has with a student. He says, if I ask you, why are you a Christian? I mean, why do you have all of these spiritual blessings? The first response is, because I received Christ in my heart. Great. Next question. Why did you receive Christ and other people have not? Well, I have confessed my sins. Okay. Why did you confess your sins and other people have not? Well, because I humbled myself before God. Okay. Why did you humble yourself and other people didn't? And you can see where he's going with us. At the end of the day, you have to point to something inside you. Maybe you're more humble than other people. Maybe you're more spiritually sensitive. Maybe you're more open-minded than other people. But there's some characteristic in you that other people don't have, which makes you superior, at least in this way, to other people. And maybe you say, no, no, listen, I'm not saying I'm better than anyone. I just believed. But still, you're resting on something inside of you that other people don't have, that made you a Christian. But the doctrine of predestination obligates us to say, by the grace of God, I am what I am. It's astonishing. I cannot point to anything in me. Now, some people, some of you even maybe, need no convincing that this is true. I think of uh, John Newton. You guys know that name. He's the one who writes the hymn, Amazing Grace, Right? Uh, before he was converted to Christianity, he was a slave trader. He took his ship to Africa. He stole men and women and children. He shoved them into his ship like they were furniture. Hundreds of them would die under such terrible conditions, and then they would throw their bodies into the ocean. He was personally responsible 
for the blood of so many slaves. And he was fully aware of this. And he lived with crushing guilt. And when he surrendered his life to Jesus, everything about him changed. He was fully dialed into the fact that there was nothing in him, nothing in his life that he could point to for salvation. That's why he writes amazing grace, not logical grace, reasonable grace, right? John Newton didn't need to be convinced that God poured out his undeserved favor upon him. See, our problem is that we do need to be convinced, because we often see ourselves as deserving, right? We, I mean, we don't have the blood of slaves on our hands. We live respectable lives. We're educated. Uh, we think of religion in terms of a respectable transaction between a tame God and a dignified people. Well, this is not grace, y'all. Grace is unmerited favor, not a contract. There's a wonder to God's love. We think we like grace until we start wrestling with it, right? Our hearts often think this doctrine of grace is extremely intolerable because we've been socialized to believe and understand ourselves a certain way that actually makes these concepts very just difficult to accept. But listen closely. The Bible is going to teach this over and over again. The doctrine of in Ephesians, is present everywhere in the Bible. I mean, you can't even get through Genesis and Exodus without being confronted by God's perfect and complete sovereignty. I mean, Jesus himself is going to look his disciples in the eyes and say, you did not choose me, I chose you. I mean, this is like full and unapologetic grace. And when you read the Bible, it's just going to be unavoidable. And, and yet people will still try to avoid it with reasoning and argumentation. And so what I want to do now is just enumerate some of the more common objections that kind of pop up into our hearts. And I'll try to quickly respond to each of them with an anecdote. So the first objection is, is this. If the doctrine of predestination is true, then we have no free will, right? And so we need to ask ourselves, what, what common definition is that free will is the ability to make choices without any prior prejudice, inclination, or disposition. So for someone to practice free will, they must act from a posture of neutrality. Okay? This sounds smart, but it cannot be true. Now, I want you to think about this. If we make a choice strictly from a neutral position, then we are making reason. And reasons or desires or interests, not neutrality, are what motivate our choices, right? In this sense, our will is not free, right? Our will is tethered to our desires, to what we want. Now, to complicate this even more, if there is no reason or desire implicit in a choice, then how can choices even be made? R.C. Sproul, he uh, illustrates this point with his, his uh, um, story, anecdote of the neutral, uh, the neutral willed mule, right? So consider a mule who had uh, no desire whatsoever or at least exact equal desires between on one side oats and on the other side wheat, 
right? If the mule had no desire or perfectly equal desire, then the mule would starve because there would be no motive to move. And without a motive, there is no choice. Choices can only be made from non-neutral dispositions, right? We want something. We want something. See, we have a will, but it's not free. Not, it's not free in the way that we think. Our will is always tethered to dispositions, to desires, to interests. Like we want what we want, right? Now listen closely. If when you say the word free will, if you're simply saying that we choose what we want, if that's what you're saying, then you have no quibble with the doctrine of predestination. Because the Bible doesn't say that you can't choose God. It says people don't want to choose God, and so they don't. No one seeks God. We naturally have a disposition of hostility toward God. And when a person is given the choice to choose God, he will always reject God because that's his nature. So Tim Keller says, if you have a lion in a place uh, and, and you place before it, right, the choice between raw, fresh meat on one hand and warm oatmeal, the lion will always freely choose the raw meat. Why? Because that's its nature. It wants what it wants. And so the zoologists will tell you, listen, there's no physiological reason why the lion can't eat the oatmeal. It just wants what it wants. So it's always going to choose the raw meat. And so Keller introduces a new metaphor for understanding. He says, think about it like this. Imagine you're watching five guys who are blindfolded walking down the ramp toward their death into a hot furnace. And you scream at them. You say, hey, stop. You're walking into a furnace. And uh, they say, what do you talk about? What are you talking about? Like, leave us alone. We're walking to Miami Beach. In fact, we can feel the heat, you know. Um, at, that point, at that point, you run towards them and you tear off the blindfold of the last two guys. And they look at the furnace and they say, wow, thank you. We, you know, like we would have killed ourselves. And, and what that story helps us illustrate, right, is, this, is, a, is to clarify this intuition that a voice from the outside of us was necessary, in fact, it was totally required. Now, if you're listening carefully, this might provoke another objection, right? Some might be inclined to say that it's unfair that God chooses some, but not others. Now, this objection of fairness rests on the assumption that everyone deserves God's rescue, and so Keller does this again. And by the way, I've been really generous with Tim Keller and R.C. Sproul in the sermon. I'm going to keep doing that. So if you find something helpful, I probably learned it from those guys. Um, he says, imagine you're a college student in a small fraternity or a sorority of about 10 guys or girls. A major recession hits hard, and now you have no money to li uh, for a living, right? And so... Um, your fraternity gets together and they make a plan to rob a bank. And you guys got, and you say, hey guys, this is crazy. Like, we can't do that. And they say, shut up, we're doing it. And so uh, they go. And the plan goes bad. They end up killing a security guard. They get caught. They get put on death row. And they're all executed. But imagine a second scenario in which 
as your fraternity is walking into the bank to rob it, this time you go to two of your friends, you take a bat, you knock them upside the head, you drag them off, and they don't participate. You violated their free will, and they got mercy, right? Now, the other eight are on death row, and they are still getting a judgment that is fair according to their free choices. Now, if you've ever had a sincere encounter with Jesus, there's a little part of that story that, like, rings true, doesn't it? Like, people who have eternal life know that there is some outside force, if not a bat hitting us upside the head, persuading our hearts into a loving relationship with God. Now this brings up one more objection. Some of us will rebut saying, if God predestines all things, then why do anything at all? Right? Have you ever heard that? This objection is filled with a kind of um, a utilitarian assumption that honestly will never satisfy your heart. If we just think about this for a little bit, you'll, you'll realize how come. So here's one more. So imagine my family and I wanted to escape Denver. Uh, so we go to a, a log cabin up in, I don't know, Montana, Wyoming, deep in the wintertime. And it's an old cabin. And I say to Micah, my oldest son, I say, hey, we need to go out, cut some wood for the furnace. Right? It's heater. The, fur the wood furnace is all we have. So start chopping wood. I'll be right back, Micah. Micah, my son, thinks to himself, my dad knows how to cut wood. He will do this. He's certainly not going to let the family freeze to death. And I come back, and I see that Micah has not done a thing. And I say, hey, buddy, like, what happened? And he, he responds very logically, well, dad, I know that if I don't cut the wood, you're going to cut it anyway. And when I realized that you're not going to let the family die, I lost all incentive to act. Is his logic good or bad? It's bad. Why? Because what Micah's insisting on in that moment is that the only legitimate incentive for cutting wood is the fear that the family were going to die. And I took that away. But shouldn't his incentive be something different I mean, of course, Micah has a father who loves him, has the skill to cut down the wood, take care of the family if he doesn't do it. And of course, if Micah messes up, like the family's not going to die. Like, definitely, I'm taking the stakes, the weighty stakes off of his shoulders. But there's more, right? I, so I say, Micah, I wanted to work with you. I wanted you to learn from me, to become more like me, and, and to please me. I definitely wanted to take the pressure off of you so that no one would die if you did a bad job. But seriously, I mean, what was, what was your motivation to start with? If Micah's only incentive was fear of his family dying, then that's a major problem, right? See, if you're saying that God's sovereignty makes everything set and therefore it takes all incentive away to act, then what was your motivation to begin with? Fear. But the doctrine of God's sovereignty, of sovereign, his sovereign grace says, listen, you, you can't ruin things. I mean, your, your heavenly father most certainly will take care of you. He has a plan for you, but he wants you to act in a way that shows your gratitude to be like him, to, to please him. 
In other words, it's love for love's sake, not fear, not con contractual negotiation. You see how that works? Now listen, there is one more objection, and it's, it's an objection for everyone, for every human, not just, not just reformed people. It's everyone who believes in Ephesians 1 on its face value, and here it is. Does God want everyone to be saved? Yes, the Bible says so. Is God powerful to save everyone? Is he powerful enough to save everyone if he wanted to? Yes. The Bible says so. So why doesn't he do it? I don't know. I don't know. It's a mystery. And some people will try to offer a response by saying, well, it's because God would never violate a person's free will. And, and if that's your response, it feels honestly a little bit superficial. I mean, my goodness, insult us, violate our free will. We're going to get over it in, in eternity, right? That cannot be God's reason. God indeed has a reason for choosing some and not others, but we don't know it. It's a mystery, we don't know who's saved and not saved. We don't, we don't have access to that information. But if there is an inclination in our soul toward God, then it's because God put that desire in you. Not because, some, not because of something in you, but because of the mercy in God's own heart. And let that humble you and, and let that make you humble to other people, to all people. All right, I'm, I'm going to wrap things up. And this, listen, this sermon has been an introduction to the book of Ephesians. It's really important that we understand, get our brain, our hearts around what Paul's talking about with this doctrine because it's going to run through every single thing he says. And so I, wanna, so I know the sermon felt, it feels different. And Paul's desire, remember as I started, is that the church of Ephesus and even you would experience grace and peace and so I try to explore grace, right? And so what I want to do is I want to explore peace as my conclusion. Um, you know, I have met dozens and dozens of people who say to me that when they finally read these verses, it really gives them the rest for their souls that they were looking for. They say, I, I could not face life if I didn't believe this. Listen, if you have a, a sensitive conscience, this doctrine is sweet as honey. Uh, John Piper, uh, when he was first, was a young man, first joined his church, he was taking his church through a shift in theology. Uh, namely, he was, it was, he was taking his church into being more reformed. And there was this one couple that was particularly critical of him. Uh, you know, it was a, a man and a woman. But these two, although they're critical of John Piper, they never missed a Sunday. And it happened that John Piper was preaching through the Minor Prophets. He had to teach on Malachi. And the whole organizing concept of Malachi is, um, is this line, I have loved Jacob, but I have hated Esau. And as you can imagine, that requires a lot of um, pastoral sensitivity because it deals with the doctrine of predestination. And so John Piper was praying um, uh, that the sermon would be edifying, um, and, uh, you know, 
And after that, you know, the, the, the first service dismissed, he actually caught word that the husband of this couple uh, had died that morning. And you know, he spent the, they, that couple had spent the morning in the hospital, but the, the, the husband was officially dead. And so during the second service, you know, he prayed for the lady. Uh, and then just before he began to preach that same sermon, he sees the wife, the lady, enter the sanctuary. I mean, she came to church right after her husband had died. And this is the kind of sermon on God's sovereignty that this, this lady would not have liked. And so John Piper's doing all these like mental calculations, but he decided as reverently as he possibly could to, to keep preaching the sermon just as he had planned. And after the service, everyone left, but this lady appears to John, and they hugged, and he offered her condolences and support, and he says, you came back. You came to church. Why? And with tears in her eyes, she says, I desperately had to hear the word of God. Thank you for telling us about a big God and putting a big rock underneath my feet. Like what brought comfort to this precious lady? It was the belief that God was perfectly sovereign over all things, and that he is good. And he's good even in the death of her beloved husband. We can trust him. Like, we can trust him. Life is, life is hard. It's going to knock you down. When a child gets sick, when cancer strikes, when you lose a job, when someone you love betrays you, when you lose a loved one, the suffering in this life, Denver Press, does not end. It's going to toss you like the crashing waves of a storm at sea. And those storms will crush you unless you are absolutely convinced that God is not capricious, nor has he ever lost control even for a moment. There is not one single loose molecule in the universe that is not under God's sovereignty. You will have no peace in this life unless your vision of God is so big, bigger than your imagination and logic, big enough to keep you steady when tragedy and suffering comes. And they will come. I'm your pastor. I'm telling you, it will come. And, and saying things like God will never violate your free will will bring you no comfort, none, on those days. But trusting in a good and loving God who writes all of history, who has a plan and a purpose for every single thing that comes to you, that will give you peace to persevere. It will. So this morning, I've really only thought about this doctrine, really just looked at verses 4 and 5, because it requires special attention, so thank you. We will, in the coming weeks, look at the more textually, but Paul, as you're going to see all through chapter 1, he's going to lose himself in this poetic fervor. And why the poetic description? It's because you can't just tell people to have peace, right? You can't say, hey, have peace. Right? You have to help them experience peace. So what I want to do is something different. Um, I've asked the band to come up. It's a little bit different. It's very different from Presbyterians. Um, but I want to end with some poetry. 
Maybe that's a little bit. Basically, um, John Piper has these poetic musings on the bigness of God. And I'm going to riff off the poetry that he wrote. And it's because I don't want to just tell you to have peace. Peace is a thing that you have to experience. It has to come over. It has to flood over you. So I want you to think about it like this. When you look into the night sky, you will see a band of stars, the Milky Way. Our galaxy is filled with 250 billion stars, and that's just our galaxy. Astronomers have estimated that there are 200 billion galaxies, and those are only the ones that we have access to. Your God created and upholds every single star by the power of his word. Before the stars were hung in the heavens, he loved you. Every atom, every molecule, every wave that has ever hit a sandy beach, every king that has ever sat on a throne, every insect that has ever existed, even those deep in the Amazons, every bird that has ever touched the highest peak, even Mount Everest towering over the earth at 29,000 feet, every fish that has scoured the deepest part of the ocean, in the Mariana Trench at 36,000 feet under the water, where Mount Everest would fit and there would still be a mile of water covering it. Every neutron, proton, electron, of which there are billions just on the tip of a hair follicle. Every part of creation owes God reverence and worship. The smartest mathematician, the most romantic poet, the cleverest politician, the most insightful sociologist, none can stand before God and say, what have you done? His wisdom is infinite and perfect. All the books ever written, every single word in the library of Congress in Washington, D.C. is like a children's picture book compared to the infinite knowledge of God. Every hundred years, 7.53 billion people are born. And every in every hundred years, 7.53 billion people die, completely changing the human composition on this small planet, fading away like a shadow at dusk. All humanity will see God face to face and will do a reckoning with him. Every hour, every minute, millisecond, all run their course at the orders of God, who sees all time, past, present, future, all at the same time, who is never surprised, who is never sleeping. The, the seasons, winter, fall, spring, summer, they know their place because they are hidden in the creative imagination of God who creates colors and numbers that you and I can't even imagine or dream up. Our God, who has never not existed, before he hung the stars to the sky, before he poured the water into the sea, he thought of you and he loved you. And he knew that you wouldn't love him first. And so he sent his son, Jesus, to persuade you with this irresistible love. And that love has no end. And it can never be thwarted. It is a love of unbreakable promise. And on those days when tears are running down your face, 
and your fragile body is shaking with grief. On that day, his preeminent love will cover you. And just like the unending waves crashing onto the shore, his favor will not end. This one is your God. It is your God. He loves you. God of grace, God of peace, may that peace be yours in Christ Jesus. Amen. Amen.